You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. The scripture passage for today is from the book of Leviticus, chapter 25, verses 35 through 43. If one of your fellow Israelites faces financial difficulty and is in a shaky situation with you, you must assist them as you would an immigrant or foreign guest so that they can survive among you. Do not take interest from them or any kind of profit from interest, but fear your God so that your fellow Israelite can survive among you. Do not lend a poor Israelite money with interest or lend food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt to give you Canaan's land and to be your God. If one of your fellow Israelites faces financial difficulty with you and sells themselves to you, you must not make him work as a slave. Instead, they will be like a hired laborer or foreign guest to you. They will work for you until the Jubilee year at which point the poor Israelite, along with their children, will be released from you. They can return to their extended family and to the family property. You must do this because these people are my servants. I brought them out of Egypt's land. They must not be sold as slaves. You will not harshly rule over them, but must fear your God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Pretty much verbatim. This is the line that I receive from two groups of people. One group are people who have been hurt by church, burned by church, no longer wish to identify as a Christian because they find some of the contents of the Bible uh, too troublesome. The other group of people uh, who say this to me uh, are you all, good church folks, good Jesus-loving people who you love the Lord, you want to love your neighbor, and yet, uh, when you got invited to that Bible study whereby you're going to read the whole Old Testament together, you got to this one and you had some questions. Understandably so. Understandably so. Oftentimes, the question comes to me uh, in some form or another that sounds like this. People will say to me, Kyle, like, you know, that book is such a tripping thing. It's such a tripping hazard for me because I, I, I know Jesus and I, I like Jesus and I get down with the God of the New Testament and then I read this one and it's like, what, what happened? Like, did God change from the Old Testament to the New? Did the Trinity sort of huddle up in between the two Testaments and say, got a little bit of a PR nightmare, okay? Uh, people are not getting down with the cause and so we're going to go the gracious, compassionate approach. Jesus, get in there. We want you in there. We got to clean it up. Here we go. Did God change? And I typically always say something in, like that's an option. 
God used to be one way and then fundamentally changed? Or is it God who changed or is it our understanding of God that changed? Is it our view of God that changed? Is it our perception of God that changed? Is it our picture, our insight into God's character and personality and God's heartbeat? Is that what changed as Jesus came closer and closer and closer into view? I said this last week that how the Bible was always supposed to be read, it was supposed to be read as a book of gradual revelation, not fixed revelation. You were supposed to receive a gradual unveiling, a gradual revealing of who God is. With the turn of every book, the turn of every chapter, the the picture of God was coming increasingly clearer, increasingly more accurate into view. And this is really, really, really good news for when you reach books like Leviticus. Because now you can understand that Leviticus is really early in the unveiling of who God is. And so as a result, we can be confident that books like Leviticus and other books in the Old Testament that raise these questions for us, we can begin to see them not as the destination God ultimately had desired and designed for us, but a step towards that destination, a step toward the ultimate plans, the ultimate dream, the ultimate type of relationship that God had in mind for us. And I want you to keep all of this in mind as we move into our conversation for today. Because you see, today we're going to jump in back to Leviticus, specifically in uh, chapter 25, and we're going to tackle a topic, we're going to tackle a theme that shows up time and time and time again throughout not only the book of Leviticus, but in the Old Testament writ large. That topic is that of justice. What version of God's justice does he ultimately want us to abide by? What type of justice does God expect us to practice with one another? Put very simply, how does God make wrong things right? So without further ado, let's jump in. If you have your Bibles with you and you want to read along today and study along today, go ahead and return back to the passage you just heard Heather read a couple moments ago in Leviticus chapter 25. I will say uh, why it's so important you keep in mind the things that I just said about Leviticus is because, and why we understand that it's a step toward the ultimate uh, desire, the ultimate definition of justice that God has for us. The reason why that's so important is because the moment you crack open this book, the moment you turn its pages, you will find interlaced in this book all types, all different kinds of different justice that, let's just put it plainly, are downright troublesome, terrifying, and very confusing. So I'll give you a couple examples. When you thumb through Leviticus, you will find instances of justice that read in a certain way, interpreted in a certain way, really communicate a version of justice that feels exclusive. It feels judgmental. It feels feels condemning. It feels shame-filled, and as a result of that, it paints a picture of God as one who is exclusive and one who is violent and one who is vengeful. So what gives? And this is where it's important to point out that amidst passages like that, we also have the passages like we have today. Passages like Leviticus chapter 25 that begin to communicate a very different type 
of justice, a different type of justice that was beginning to peek through. Leviticus chapter 25 says this, that uh, I don't care, God speaking to God's people, I don't care how other people are treating their people. I don't care how other nations, other groups, the other sort of religious groups around you, I don't care how they're treating one another. This is how my people are going to treat one another. You want to be holy? You want to be set apart? That's great. This is what this looks like. He said he talks about that what it looks like to be a Christian, the type of justice uh, that it looked like to be a follower of God is one who practices uh, generosity. It's one who practices radical hospitality for the immigrant and the foreign guest living among you. Uh, It looks like being someone who doesn't charge interest, doesn't take advantage of, doesn't oppress someone who's already in a financially sort of vulnerable position. It looks like uh, when you have servants, uh, you are to not treat them as slaves, you are to not treat them as objects, but you are to treat them as human beings and to care for them and to uh, treat them as hopefully you would want uh, to be treated. And so while all of these things as we're reading them today might sound obvious to you, it is so, so vitally important that you remember that that was not obvious to them 3,500 years ago. 3,500 years ago, if you were poor, they believed you did something to deserve that. Theologically, the move that they made was you probably did something to deserve that place in life, to deserve that sort of position in life. Furthermore, if you were suffering in any way, suffering uh, not only financially but familially or relationally or emotionally or mentally, it was believed back then. Uh, that maybe it wasn't your fault, but maybe you've got a distant ancestor two or three generations before who they committed a sin, they made a mistake, and what you're experiencing is actually their fault. And so when you see them suffering, it's like, yeah, well, you know, tough. Sorry, sorry that your great, 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 great grandfather who you've never met and you have no idea who they are did that to you. You had no responsibility to care for them. Thirdly, uh, when it came to this practice of Uh, having servants, having people who worked for you, most often during that time, uh, you viewed a slave as someone who was subhuman, someone who's not even fully uh, one of you. And so you could treat them however you wanted. You could treat them as an object. You could treat them as property. And so what I'm trying to get you to see is for God to say something like this, while that may be obvious to you, it would have been revolutionary for them. They would have been shocked. And they would have been shocking all the other neighboring nations by the fact that they practice such decency, such kindness, such thoughtfulness, such equity in their dealings with one another. And furthermore, what is happening here in this moment is we're getting a glimpse of the ultimate type of justice that Jesus himself would come to bring. What does it say in Luke chapter 4? Jesus, in his sort of inaugural address, one of his first ever sermons to a group of people, he says why he's here. He sort of gives his mission statement as to why he's been sent to earth. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me. Why? To do what? To preach the good news to the poor, to proclaim the release to the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So what this means is that what Leviticus chapter 25 is, is 
God's attempt to move, albeit slowly, I'll give it to you, albeit very slowly, to move God's people away from a certain type of destructive justice to kingdom justice. God was trying to move God's people away from a justice steeped in revenge and retribution to one founded on redemption. God was trying to move God's people away from a a version of justice that was built on judgment and shame to one comprised of mercy and compassion. Time and time again, if you're actually paying attention, what you'll find is the type of justice that God is after is not, what do they deserve? Let's give them what they deserve. Instead, God, throughout the entire scriptures, is asking, what do they need? What do we need to do? What What do we need to enact to bring them closer to us, to take them a little bit closer to the future we want with them. And I'll say more on that in a second. But before I continue, before I continue, I just want to do a quick pulse check, make sure everyone's still with me on this. Uh, The reason for which uh, is because whenever churches and whenever preacher types get up and they utter the word, justice. Let's just, it's okay, safe space, right? We can be safe here. Some people get a little nervous, don't you? You get a little shaky. Feels like a little bit of like a, whoo, I don't know we can go, I don't know where we're going with this sort of topic of conversation. It's kind of like this. So uh, I did a, a wedding this past weekend, and it's always so fascinating to me uh, what happens. So uh, most times when I do a wedding, people just assume I'm like one of these like distant friends that got ordained online and then found a speech and then like just sort of made it work for this particular couple. And then always, it's always so fascinating how the conversation changes at the cocktail hour when they learn I'm an actual pastor. <laughs> they get a little nervous. They get a little shaky. And they say, well, I, 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 oh, I, I like Jesus too. And, you know, I've, I've always been meaning to to get back into church. It was really good to meet you. I think we're just going to head back over here. Let's go, honey. Let's go, honey. Let's get the car. Warm up the car. Warm up the car. So similarly, there's conversations in the church that make us a little shaky, make us a little nervous. Why? Well, because for some, uh, the topic of justice is one that uh, they believe the church doesn't address enough. One of their struggles with church One of their struggles with organized Christianity writ large is the church does an awesome job talking about prayer and faith and Bible studies and all that good stuff, but on the examples and the instances of suffering and injustice and oppression and marginalization in the world, the church will say nothing. Or maybe uh, you are on the flip side of that coin. Maybe you've been a part of churches that, and you are like, oh, we talk about it too much. It feels like every week it's just a reciting of whatever I hear on the news, and it's a, it doesn't sound like anything different than what this pundit is saying versus that pundit, and so they just talk about it too much, and I think that's also valid. I think sometimes one of the things that you'll experience in a lot of American churches today is a conflating of justice in politics, right? And that's a really tricky conversation to have in the church, isn't it? And I'd be lying to you. I'd be lying to you if I said, if I didn't say that 
anytime and every time I feel like it is God puts it on our hearts as pastors to preach and to talk about this subject that I don't carry a little bit of anxiety. Chiefly because over the last 10 years of ministry, I have lost people whom I love, whom I deeply care about for both reasons. Sometimes in the same day, I'll get the email Whereas just too much of that. Oh, it's too little of that. You guys emailed me in the same hour. How is this possible? And so over the last like five or so years, five or so years, I've done a lot of soul searching as a pastor. I feel like we all have. Like in one way, shape, form, or another, we've all kind of done doing our own soul searching the last several years. Maybe for you it's in your relationships or it's in your marriage or maybe it's in your job. Uh, but I've done a lot of reflecting on this tension. I've asked a lot of my friends who are pastors in different parts of the country, like, why is this so hard? Why does it feel like a loser's game? And what I want to share with you today are a couple of observations that I've found. A couple of observations as to why not only we here at the Peak Church, but I believe we here in the American church struggle with this topic so badly while we fumble this conversation on justice so often. The first is this. The first issue that we have here in the American church is I actually believe that most American Christians don't actually have an understanding of God's version of justice. They know their preferred political party's definition of justice. They know how Americans define justice. And shoot, everybody in this room understands a human definition of justice. How humans define justice is when we see wrong, when we see suffering, when we see one person harming another or one group harming another, what do we say? We say, okay, how do we make sure we get even? That's the type of justice we've been steeped in. How do we make things even? How do we pay back to that person or that group, what that happened to that group, to that person? How do we just keep sort of exchanging blows with one another? And we've got biblical foundations to back it up. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But this is what's so fascinating about when you read the book of Leviticus. In all of its complexity and imperfections, Leviticus chapter 25 is actually giving you an incredibly innovative picture of what justice could look like. In some ways, a book that was enacted 3,500 years ago might even be ahead of some of our communities and pockets of Christianity in the American church. I'll give you an example. Did you catch that uh, in the passage, uh, there's a mention of the Jubilee year? Anybody catch that? You see the mention of a Jubilee year? You see, friends, one of the practices of our ancient Israelite friends is one of the things that they would do is every seven years they would practice what's called a Sabbath year. So on the Sabbath year, they would pause. They would rest. They actually were not allowed to work the land. You had to, for an entire year, you had to trust in the providence of God that you would have the food that you need and be provided with everything you need. And you were to use that time to not only rest from your labors, but to give rest to other people and to really kind of rediscover peace for yourself and for your neighbor and for the people that you worked alongside. And what happened was on every seventh Sabbath year, so seven times seven, 49, so then the fifth and the 50th year, they practiced what's called the Jubilee year. 
And in addition to all of those practices of resting and being reformed and sort of being remade, the other thing that they would do is they would practice this radical form of justice whereby they would, anyone who held a debt, free from that debt, didn't owe you nothing, no more. Anyone who was a servant or who was a slave to you was set free instantaneously, allowed to return back to their home, return back to their family. They practiced this radical form of justice whereby the goal that year was not to get even. It wasn't to settle up. It was to get whole again. This is the justice that God is after. Wholeness for you as an individual. Wholeness for us as a people. Quite frankly, this is one of the things that I love most about Jesus is that so often... Before Jesus could even utter a syllable to talk about faith or spirituality, he was doing something to care for someone to make them more whole. Oftentimes, before he even got into talking about spirituality, about God, or about himself, he would heal someone who needed to be healed. He would feed someone who was hungry. He would heal a divide between two groups of people long before he even launched into conversations about faith and spirituality. And it just goes to show that when it comes to God's justice, it's so much broader than we think it is. It looks kind of like this. When you look through the scriptures, especially the gospels, what you'll find is that Jesus is practicing all of these different types of justice. He's consistently asking the question, what is it that this person needs? What is it that this, this people group needs? What's missing from their life to be Whole. And so sometimes this required him to confront institutions. That's the type of justice that he enacted. He would call out people who were being hypocritical. He would call out religious leaders who were adding to the harm, adding to the oppression and the marginalization of people. And then furthermore, what makes Jesus so incredible is that you look at moral, moral justice. He would not, he would also wouldn't give up on those religious leaders. He could have easily just been like, ugh, they are without hope. We are not redeeming them. We are not saving them. But he doesn't. He goes back to them and he says, let me invite you to a new way of thinking of right and wrong. Let me invite you to new categories altogether of thinking of yourself versus that group of people over there. Jesus, time and time again, teaches us that the type of justice that he's after is not just one that cares about your soul or the status of your soul, but the status of your heart, the status of your mind, the status of your wallet, all of these things make up a truly whole individual. They set you on the pace to finding that abundant, that full life that he talked about. And so if you're going to be a Christian, and you're going to be a Christian that actually cares about justice, then part of your witness in the world is to be people who stop asking this question. To stop asking the question, oh, okay, Harm has been done. These two people groups are at odds. Or this person hurt this person. How do we make it even? No. Instead, to be a Christian who believes in justice, who's arguing for kingdom justice, saying, how do we make this person complete? How do we make them whole? How do we make this people group complete? Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, I've begun a new work in you, and I'm going to keep going until I carry it out to completion and friends, maybe just maybe it'll be God who completes it for that person or that group. And maybe just maybe it might be you. It might be us.
So that's our first issue. Our first issue with this conversation is we just fundamentally don't understand God's version of justice. We understand the American view. We understand the human view. We just don't even know what God's running after. And secondarily, the other big issue that we have, especially in the American church today, is as a result of all of that complexity, we've just delegated this job to someone else. I've watched it over, especially over the last couple of decades, we've just watched the church say, you know what, justice is like someone else's responsibility. We're going to let that be someone else's job. I'm a visual person, so it looks like this. Many Christians walk around with this sort of understanding that it's the responsibility of the church to talk about faith stuff, to talk about religious stuff. We talk about spiritual stuff. But that justice conversation, like making wrong things right, like, yeah, like we're just going to delegate that somewhere else. That's someone else's job. And so we make it government's job. Or we make it a nonprofit's job. Or we make it the responsibility of the loudest person on your social media feed. You know what I'm talking about? You got people like that on your feed right now? Share this post with the next 10 people or you don't care about puppies in Antarctica. Say what you want about it, it works. I always walk away, I feel guilty the rest of the day. I'm petting every puppy in our neighborhood going, God loves you, Jesus loves you, I promise. I don't hate you, this is going to be great. It's all going to work out. Quite frankly, it's the last people on God's green earth we should be delegating that responsibility to. We confuse confidence with competence all the time. But I know why we do it. I know why so it's so easy for Christians to sort of delegate this responsibility uh, to somebody else. It's because, let's just call it like it is, so many of these issues in our world, instances of injustice and oppression, they're complicated, aren't they? They're not simple. They're complicated. They require you to get educated. They require you to get informed. Sometimes you have to get trained to actually participate in the redemption of those areas in our world. And don't mishear me. Just because it's complicated doesn't mean we don't still have a role to play in those conversations. Because we do. There are particular causes in your life, there are particular causes in this world where uh, there's a reason why you have such a strong passion for that area. And it's because God is looking to you and to people like you to be the ones spearheading and working in that particular area. I don't want to negate that. But I do think sometimes we, we see the complexity, we see how complicated justice is, and what happens is we lose. We miss out on all of the opportunities that God gives you to practice justice in your everyday life. I promise you, if you start looking for it, there are opportunities for you to practice kingdom justice every single day with the people around you. I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. Two months ago, we sent our kids back to school. We're on year-round schedule, so we sent them back to school. And our kids ride the bus to school. And anyone in this room who has kids who ride the bus to school, you know that right now it's an absolute dumpster fire out there. Okay? 
It's kind of like the lottery. Like some days you wake up and you're like, is the bus going to come? Is it not going to come? I don't know. This is kind of fun. Let's just see. And they give you an app on your phone to track the location of your bus as if that's going to help. But then what they'll do is they'll assign you another bus that's not even your bus. And so you'll watch it travel all the way down to Charlotte or something. And you're like, what's happening? Where are my children going? Help! And so about two months ago, got the best of me. And I started having a real bad attitude about it. And so I was talking to anyone who would listen. I was talking to the clerk who was checking me out of the grocery store. I was talking to my wife about it. And I was just griping about, I just don't understand. This is so easy. Like, why can't we just figure out a solution for my kids to get to school? Like, what's happening? And no sooner did my complaining reach its peak did I see a news story that was saying one of the reasons why it is such a mess out there is because there's a huge shortage of bus drivers in Wake County. And they went on to explain why. They said for years, bus drivers uh, are not paid a living wage. Uh, they're actually paid a wage that's in the poverty gap. So they're actually uh, being paid something that actually you can't live off of. You can't feed a family uh, with that income. And furthermore, when you think of the conditions that a bus driver inhabits every day, I don't think I could do that job more than one day. I love my children, but we were on a road trip for one hour, one, one, in our van, and I swear, I was like, adoption, anyone, anyone want these, both these children? They're beautiful, they're wonderful, they work hard. Um, when you think about that, you actually back up and think about it. Like, it's a justice issue. Here is a people group who serve my family, who serve our community. And they are being treated in such a way where every day they wake up and they live an incomplete life. They are not being given what they need to experience a rich, abundant life that Jesus speaks about. And so my family, we made a decision. We said, from here on out, I'm not griping no more. I ain't complaining no more. Uh, we are going to, A, we're going to control the things that we can control. I don't know the little, the little pie chart. I don't know which ones we're supposed to meet, but maybe it's emotional support. Maybe it's somewhat financial support. So we're going to start buying gift cards for uh, our bus drivers. We're going to start making our kids write thank you cards and show appreciation. And maybe that doesn't solve the whole pie. Maybe it doesn't solve the whole thing. But maybe, just maybe, what it does is it does our our tiny part so that they come through our neighborhood and they say, maybe, just maybe, one family sees me. One neighborhood cares about me. One people, one family, one person in this entire world sees me and wants me to thrive. And although they made a change uh, to the, the board of directors this past month and they gave them more pay, you better believe if another opportunity shows up to advocate for that people group, you better believe my happy little butt's going to be in there. I'll close here. Benjamin, come on up. You see, why sermons like this? Why sermons that try to tackle this conversation are so hard? And why they don't enable and empower and inspire more action more often. 
is because people oftentimes leave sermons like this. Maybe you're tempted to do the same. People leave sermons like this, and they say, well, Kyle, that's cute and great, but, like, I can think of a bunch of different issues uh, that are more important to me than bus drivers or whatever. Or, Kyle, that's fine, but, like, you know, that's a small dent and a huge issue. That's not enough. You go home. I know the way it works. You go home. You turn on social media. You turn on the news. You watch the sheer avalanche of episodes of injustice and oppression that exist in our world. And so what do you do? You see it all. You're so overwhelmed by it. You're so saturated that you become suffocated by it. And so what do you do? You just stop caring. And listen, that's no judgment. I understand why. It's suffocating how many episodes and instances of injustice there are out there. And so you cut your heart off. You detach your heart from all that stuff because you're like, I just can't take it no more. can't read about this no more. can't watch this no more. And I want you to hear, I want you to hear me. I, I hear that. And I can empathize with that. And, and... I'm going to try to say this to you gently, and you're not allowed to do that. As a follower of Jesus, you're just not allowed to do that. Now, I'm also going to encourage you, that does not mean you're supposed to leave here today and fix all the instances and examples of injustice out in the world. That's not actually what's expected of you. What's expected of you is to engage and to serve in the episodes of injustice that are close to you and that you have the capacity to help. It looks kind of like this. Friends, part of my job as your pastor is to help prepare you for the conversations you're going to have with Jesus. My job is to help prepare you for the conversations you're going to have with your Savior. And I have no doubt there's going to be some of you who are sitting there with Jesus, and he's going to say, okay, so let's real quick, like, let's talk about uh, your love and your care for your neighbors. And some of us are going to be like, oh, well, Jesus, like, I hear you. Like, I, I saw the news story of the person suffering in Indonesia, and I'm sorry I didn't do more. And Jesus is going to be like, that was fine. I had people over there to address that one. I needed you where I put you. And I needed you to use the capacities that I gave you to meet the needs that surrounded you. My job as your pastor is to prepare you for the areas where God's going to hold you most accountable. And the places where God's going to hold you most accountable are the places, the people, the people groups, the causes that A, that are closest to you, that you can reach. And B, you've got some capacity to meet them. And so I want to challenge you. I want to push you to think about the capacity. You have more capacity than you think you do. Sometimes we think capacity is just money. Sure, maybe it is money to a cause or something. Maybe for you it's time. Maybe it's volunteering. Maybe it's networking. Maybe you are, like, when the reason why you were supposed to see an issue on TV or on social media is because you don't, you can't fix it, but you know a really good friend who does work in that area, and your job is to connect those two so that now we can move somewhere, we can see progress, we can inch closer to the type of world that God is preparing for us. Again, 
I get it. Justice is a complicated conversation, and I'm not saying it's not. But I am saying that sometimes we overcomplicate it. I think Cornell West said it best when he said, if you think about it just in the most simplistic terms, justice is simply what love looks like in public. If you're going to be a people who claim to be loved by God, who claim to know the love of God, who claim to know the one who is love, 1 John chapter 4. It ain't no good if you only use it in private spaces. Amen? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let God's people say, amen. Thank you for listening to the Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.